Well, good morning. It's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 121. And we'll start at verse 1. I will lift my eyes up unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. You know, roads take the, the easiest course. They run along the bottomlands. They go between and around and not over the hills and mountains. Now, we surely know that living here in a valley. Every gap in the mountains on either side of us has a major highway going through it. As the psalmist passes along this road, he's looking up to the hills on either side of the road. And he knows that they can hide enemies and bandits who can attack the caravan suddenly with the advantage of height. And he asks, where does my help come from? in this dangerous place. Now, this is a song of ascents. The pilgrims would sing these songs on their way up to Jerusalem. And like them, our walks take us between the mountains, surrounded by an ungodly society, by scoffers and haters of the Lord, by people who are doing and approving all kinds of evil. We are ambushed and attacked from every side. How will we make it home? to be with the Lord. The answer for the pilgrims and for us is the same, and it comes immediately in verse 2. My help cometh from the Lord, which maketh heaven and earth. My helper is the Lord. So what does that help look like when my helper is the Lord? How, how do we access that help? How do we call for it? And how does God send it? Well, one way he provides help for us is through something we call accountability. So we talk about accountability a lot, but people in unregulated churches and more liberal churches, well, they really have no reference point for, for what we're talking about. And people outside the church, well, they have even, even less reference. Accountability is it's another one of those things that you, as a conservative Christian, are, will probably be asked about. Or maybe you even have questions about it. Well, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 tells us, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So I've been preaching this series for a while now called Have a Ready Answer, where we talk about these basic questions of the faith that we might hear. I started it because I was noticing that some of our young people 
really didn't have full answers to the things that they professed to believe in. And I thought it would be a few messages. Well, we'll preach about the head covering, and we'll preach about non-resistance. And, well, now it's been about a year. So it seems like there are a lot of things that we do need to talk about like this. And all of these things, we can get these questions from outside the church as well. So do we have the answers? Do we have answers about why we have accountability? And what does it do for us? How does it help us? How is it a help to us? So again, what, what are the questions then? So what does it even mean to be accountable? Accountable for what and to whom? And perhaps most importantly, how is accountability help? So I'm sorry. So the title of the message was, Have a Ready Answer, Who is My Helper? Or summed up in one word, accountability. So what does accountability even mean? Well, how is the word, how is it used in scripture? Well, actually, the form accountability isn't. It doesn't appear in scripture. Now, in the King James, we do have the word account. We have it 11 times in the New Testament. And eight of those 11 times, the same word is translated as account. We have Matthew 12, 36, they shall give account thereof. Matthew 18, 23, would take account of his servants. Luke 16, 2, give an account of thy stewardship. Acts 19, 40, give an account of this. Romans 14, 12, give an account of himself to God. Philippians 4, 17, fruit may abound to your account. Hebrews 13, 17, as they must give account. And 1 Peter 4, 5, who shall give account to him. And we look at most of those verses as we go along. But in each one, we can see a picture of an explanation and a promise of judgment. Except for Philippians 4.17, they all seem pretty negative, don't they? You're going to have to account for this or for that. And we get the picture of a ledger and the accounts being in balance. Is there enough good? Are there enough payments to offset the bad, the debt? But these eight places, they aren't the only time that this word is used. In fact, it's used quite a lot in the New Testament. If we saw some of the other places, I wonder if we might think of this accounting in a little bit of a different light. But how, how about this one? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. See, the word translated as account in those other eight verses, it's rendered here as word. The word is logos. Now, in ancient Greece, a person's logos was his theory of operation. It was the way he did things. It was all the things that he believed that were rolled up into one thing. Any Greek would be expected to be able to explain his logos, the reasons that he does the things that he does, the reasoning of his life, the thoughts and knowledge that you live and the decisions, make your decisions by. A man's logos was really the word that he lived by. And so with Christ, we have God's word, God's story, God's opinion, God's 
theory of doing things made real, made into a living person walking among us to show us God's plan. To go a step further, a man's logos was his story. It was more than just an accountant's ledger of good and bad acts. It was the account, the story of his life. All that he had thought and done and the reasons he had acted the way that he had were his logos. Now, even if you're not a parent, you've probably experienced a young child who ran up to you all excited to tell you the complicated story of his day. And you just wonder how you know, getting, how digging that little hole or playing with a truck turned into this 17-page you know, story that you were just told. But it's told with so much joy and so much happiness. Now, if you are a parent, you've probably also heard that same child tell his confession of something that he wasn't supposed to do that day. So each of us here will have that opportunity before God to give our account, our story, our logos to God. Is it going to be a story that we're anxious to tell? So that's what accountability is then. It's the opportunity or the requirement to share our story. Well, who is it that we will share our story, tell our story to? Well, Romans 14, 11, and 12 tells us, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now Paul's quoting Isaiah here, Isaiah 45, 23. The Lord says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. God created us and he designed a purpose for us and he has every right to ask an account from us. And he clearly states that he is going to do exactly that. And scripture speaks repeatedly of this accounting, most famously in Revelation 20:12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So we're accountable to God. We're going to tell our story to God. Well, what are we accountable for? What in our story is it that God wants to hear? What are the things that we have to tell him about? Well, Revelations 20.12 tells us we'll be judged according to our works. So all the things that we have done. But Jesus also tells us that we'll also be judged for the things that we have not done. In Matthew 25, 45, he says, And then he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. We'll have to explain the evil thoughts that we've harbored and the resulting words that we've spoken. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 35 and 36, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. But we'll also be able to tell about the good things. We'll be able to tell about the things that we have done for the Lord. Philippians 4, 15 through 17 says, Now ye Philippians know also 
that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica sent you once and again to my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. The good things that we've done are part of our story as well. But this is still all about judgment. And I thought this was about who's my helper. How is all this judgment a help to me? Because, you know, we all know our own story. And everyone's story includes sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We, we have all sinned and we can't hide our sins from God. But the knowledge of our sin and the fact that we'll have to tell our story to the Lord compels us to find a remedy for this, this situation that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> in Acts 27 through, in Acts 37 through 38, after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the people come and they say, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. To remedy our situation, God has sent Christ. And by believing on him, we can make our story right again. And having accepted Christ, we still continue to test our readiness, to review our story, to see where we are. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So I can review my notes at any time. My story is always with me. I know the things I've done. I know where I am in my walk. And judgment, judgment's not a pop quiz. Do you remember in school, you walked into class and you thought, oh, it's Thursday, it's not a test day, and I can just take notes and just kind of chill during this class. And the professor came in with that little look on his face. Yeah, we're having a pop quiz today. I was never ready for pop quizzes. I studied the day before finals, okay? Pop quizzes were murder. But God's not like that. God doesn't have that little look on his face. Ha ha, gotcha. You know your story all the time. You can always be looking at your notes. Every test is open book. We know every day of our lives what God expects of us. And we know what our account is. And we know if the main character of our story is ourselves or Jesus Christ. And this is a mercy and a help to us because we can always be preparing. Acts 4, 11, and 12 says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We can change our story. When the main character of our story becomes Jesus, judgment turns to grace. God has made a way for us to travel this valley between the hills 
and to bring us out safe. And we have his many promises that he'll bring us through. So still, how does he do that? Where, where does this help come from? When people are suffering, we tell them, well, God will help you with that. Jesus will help you through that. But there's nothing wrong with them asking, how? How is that really going to happen in my life? Excuse me. So, who is my helper? Where do I find him? Am I my own helper? We live in a time of, of self-help. If you go into any bookstore, well, by far the largest section is the self-help section. Does that work? I don't know. I've read a lot of diet books, but I'm still not buttoning my coat. But what else? We have the Bible. And the Bible offers quite a lot of self-help tips. First of all, we know we can be accountable to ourselves. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 13, we can review our story. We can examine ourselves to see if Christ is on our throne. And if he is, well, then the scripture tells us what to do to keep him there. And if he's not, the scripture tells us how to get him there. So we have a great self-help book. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above and not on things of earth. So we can help ourselves by maintaining our focus, by seeking Jesus and not the temporary things of the world. So that's a self-help for us. Philippians 4.8 says, and you can probably say it with me, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Temptation comes to the mind, and the mind makes the body act. If we can keep our minds focused on the good things, the lovely things given to us by Christ, the temptation is just pushed away. We don't have time for it. Romans 12.2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This exercising our minds by focusing on the good things and on the spiritual things, it strengthens us. It strengthens our mind and our heart and lets us see God's plan for us. So God gives us a lot of advice to help ourselves. Is that the help the psalmist was looking for? Was that going to save him when the bandits came down off the mountain? Is that all God does? Just give us a book. Well, we're accountable to God, but he still does everything that he can to make sure that our story will be pleasing to him. God does not just leave us to help ourselves. God himself steps forth as our helper, and he has provided the way to salvation, and he sought us out and rescued us. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And God's generous offer is for everyone's sin to be covered. 
1 John 2, 2 says, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he offers further to adopt us into his family, to make us brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He continues to reach out to us and seek us, even as we defy him. In Isaiah 1.18, the Lord says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Even when we're in rebellion, God will come and contend with us to bring us to him. Jesus promises that he and the Father will actually live in us. You can turn over to John 14 if you want. Now go down to verse 19. And Jesus says, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And Judith saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. God, Jesus, the Spirit, they're all with us, in us, to be our helpers. Whatever attacks you or comes for you, whatever temptation you face, you don't face it alone. You have Christ in you. But God doesn't stop there, as if that wouldn't be enough. He surrounds us with even more helpers. The church is also our helper. God has given us the church as a safe place to worship him and a safe place to tell our stories. Different groups in the people are there to help you in different ways. You have your ministry. But why should you share your account with the church and with the ministry in particular? If I have something terrible in my story that I can't deal with, why should I trust the people in the church and the ministry to tell that story to, to share that? How are they going to help me? Why do I know they're going to help me? Well, your ministry has a charge to care for you. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Why are we all here together? Because we find each other on the same road. We want to have the same destination. We're here willingly because we want to ultimately be with Jesus. Your church leaders aren't shepherds because, because it's profitable in any worldly sense. It might be like dairy farming. You work and work and work and you never really make any money. I don't know, hopefully for all of you it's not like that. But it's not profitable in a worldly sense. We're shepherds because we love the Lord and we love you and want to serve God and you. Hebrews 13, 16 through 17 says, But to do good and communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. They must give account. Your story is part of your ministry's story. What did we do when the sheep went astray? When this one was threatened, what did we do? When the flock was in danger, did, did we love the sheep? Were the sheep well fed? Were they properly taught? Did you offer your life for them? You know, when there are bumps in your story, you should be able to share them with your church and with your ministry because they love you. Well, how much? How much do they love you? How much do you love me that I can share this with you? I got a big problem. I need a lot of love. How, how much? Philemon 18 and 19 says, If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest me even unto thine own self besides. Paul wrote to Philemon, asking him to welcome back a, a runaway slave and to greet him as a fellow Christian, even as he would greet Paul himself. Now, as a runaway slave, apparently this man had stolen from Philemon twice. He stole himself when he ran away because the man owed him. And he stole some money or something on his way out the door. But Paul says, whatever wrong or debt he has to you, put it on my account. And here, the word used actually does refer to a financial ledger. Put it on my bill and I will pay it. So what do you owe to God? Do we love you that much that we would say that to God on your behalf? Lord, put it on my account. Well, didn't God already say it? He said it in Hebrews 13, 17. They must give an account for you. You are already on our account.
and we love you. You can share your story because we love you that much. But your brothers and sisters are also your helpers. It's not just your ministry. All believers are charged to warn those who are having problems and struggles and stray. Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19 says, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and you givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. So it should simply not be possible to be a part of the church and to not be warned when our story is not what it should be. Now, this is a tremendous help to anyone who has any kind of wisdom just to listen. Because we can all be tempted, we can all be deceived, and we can all be willful. But a warning from a loving brother or sister can save our souls. And when someone falls, all believers should have a heart to seek them and to bring them home. That's not just the ministry's job. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So just as the caravan was better able to fend off robbers than a lone traveler, people could protect each other, there is safety in the numbers of the church. Close relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church make us stronger. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe unto him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We build each other up when we share our stories, when we give account one to another. We're stronger together than alone. The real strength here is that these are relationships. This isn't a matter of one person lording over another person. This is brothers and sisters loving and helping each other. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So we have all this help. We can help ourselves. We have Christ in us. We have the surroundings of the church and its ministry and all the brothers and sisters. But how do we get it? Is all this help just sitting there if we don't somehow access it? Do we have to ask? What is it that we have to do? Well, first, 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So why do we 
write these little blue books? And why do we have all these statements that we work so hard on in conference? And why do we focus so much on the scripture? Because it's really hard to help each other in our Christian walk if we don't agree about what that walk looks like. If we're not in agreement about what a righteous life looks like, then how can I tell you to continue to walk that righteous life? Ephesians 4.25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So members of the body means we are members together. The more honest and open we can be with each other, the more we can help each other. And we don't want to be honest and open, right? We struggle when we have hard times in our lives. You know, a lot of you raise birds. Well, how are birds? You know, you look at a bird, you look at a chicken, or you look at a parakeet, and you check on him every day, and he's fine, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine, he's dead. There's no signs, nothing going on. Because out there in the wilderness, to be sick is to get eaten, right? You attract predators' attention. People are like that too. I have to be fine because I don't want to draw all this attention from other people. We have to open up. And we also have to reach out to each other. How are you? Right? In the world today, how are you? That's a greeting. The answer is fine. Be bold. Be brave. Tell them how you are. Tell them, you know, I really need to get together and, and talk to somebody. Can we, can we meet for coffee? They may never ask you how you are again, but they'll meet you for coffee. The more honest and open we are, the more we can help each other. Turn over to James 5. And down to verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. To access the help that God has provided, all we have to do is reach out and take it. Are you afflicted? Pray. Ask the Lord. Are you happy? Sing. Let everyone around you know. Are you sick? Call for the church to come and pray for you. And confess your faults one to another. Tell your story. Find someone that you trust and tell them your story. So what do we do then? When someone comes and tells us their story, what, what is our responsibility? To be that helper, to be God's instrument for that person. What if their story isn't so good? Maybe it's pretty awful. Maybe their story has things in it that you would never even have dreamed of happening to you. What if the main character of their story is, is self? What if it's even Satan? What if their story is one of a terrible struggle? What's our responsibility then at that point? What do we do? How do we respond? 
Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So the first thing, when we hear our brother or our sister's story, the first thing we have to remember is that we don't get to judge. Judgment is reserved for God. And we have to remember that our response to this person is going to determine whether our brother or sister will be able to confess their sin here in this body. If the only result of a person coming up here and confessing their sin, confessing to a struggle or a fall, is that they will be shamed and gossiped about and be the topic of discussion around everyone's table, you can safely predict that no one else will come and confess to much of anything. People confess not just because they can't bear the guilt anymore and it just comes pouring out. They confess because they haven't been able to overcome their sin and they want your help. Confession is a cry for help. Flip over to Galatians 6. And starting at verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, the first two verses there seem like they're about that help, right? If a man's overtaken in a fault, go and help him. But the, the rest of it is all this, sounds like all this self stuff, right? Every man will bear his own burden and let every man prove his own work. What's that all about? Paul is saying... Don't think that you can compare yourself to this person who has fallen and say, see, I never would have done that. I may have my problems, but I never would have done that. I never would have done that. I'm, I'm good. I can help this person because I'm in a much better place. But you can fall just as easily as he did. We're all tempted alike. Don't think that you're something special when you're just the same as everyone else, when you have just the same need of God and Christ as everyone else does. So be sure you're sure of yourself. Review your own story. Don't I have struggles too? And what of my struggles will help me to help this brother? I went through this and I got out of it this way. Can I teach that to my brother? Can I help him that way? I was strengthened by these other brothers. What did they do for me? 
And now I can pass that on to this brother. We are to comfort and restore and bear each other's burdens. We have to freely love, freely forgive, and freely encourage. In Luke 17, 3 and 4, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Thou shalt forgive him. It's hard to forgive. People do terrible things. But we have to remember that vengeance is God's. Our job is not to punish. Our job is to seek to restore the fallen so that they can serve God again. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 again says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Even while you're comforting one another, build each other up. Don't just sit there and cry together. Work to build each other up. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to tear each other down. Your brother's story is probably that he is already torn down. Your job is to build him back up. When a brother or a sister gives us their account, when they tell us their story, and, and we listen, whether they, they come up here and tell the whole church, or whether they can only bear to share it in the quietest whispers with just you, that story, their story, becomes part of your story. God expects us to react and to help his child. Action is required. Our story continues. We don't just stop there. He doesn't expect you to run to the ministry or to tell others or to put it in the newspaper. You've been chosen to help this person. God brought this person and their story to you. Talk, listen, pray, visit, answer, comfort, teach. If your help isn't bringing that person closer to victory, then convince them to bring in more help. Don't lose their trust by going around them. Talk to them and say, brother, we need more help. Convince them that they can share their story with another and then keep adding help until you have the victory won. Don't quit. It's not a hand someone a book and it's all better thing. It's your relationship, your friendship, your love, which is Christ's love that is going to heal that brother or sister. And whether they spoke only to you or whether they spoke to the whole church, call them and check on them. Brother, 
How's your walk? And if they call and they say, brother, I'm struggling, go. Go and be with them and strengthen them. And I mean, go. I'm talking walk out of the chicken house, half done, go. I'm talking leave the chopper running in the field, go. Get up from the dinner table, go. Your brother's soul is in danger. Go. What could be more important? Go. Encourage them. Be with them. What if someone had been with David on that route? What if one of his brothers had said, you know, brother, we should go over to the other side. What disaster would have been spared? Go to your brother when he calls for you. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. If these are the ways that we respond to each other when we struggle, instead of failure after failure, we will see victory after victory. God has made a way for our help to come through accountability.